Welcome to Spark Science. This is a special episode where I enlist my colleagues to help me dissect an interview with Nobel laureate Bruce Voitler. We apologize for mispronouncing his name so many times in the beginning of this episode. Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant, mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecule spontaneous combustion, Bam. law of definite proportion, gaining weight, I'm every element around. Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. My name is Regina Barbara DeGraff. I teach physics and astronomy here at Western Washington University. And I am here today with my two great friends and veterans of season one of Spark Science, Dr. Lena Dahlberg and Dr. Jackie Rose. How are you doing today? Super duper. Doing great. <laughs> so I brought you back because um, I had a one day notice. It was like last minute and they're like, guess what? This guy who has won a Nobel Prize is at our university. You should interview him. And I was like, okay. And I had a very little time to prepare, and I had about 15 to 20 minutes to talk to him. And I brought you two in because we're going to listen to some clips and kind of dissect what he talked about. Because I think that there was some jargon that I was just lost while he was talking. But also he talks about biology and uh, gene editing, which I know nothing about, and maybe you two do. So you might remember, our listeners, you might remember Dr. Um, Dahlberg, we were talking about the science of smell, and uh, Dr. Rose, we had a very fun episode about uh, the science of the movie Inside Out, where we were just being crazy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> she's Super nodding. scientific. <laughs> Super she's, scientific. She's nodding. Um, but first of all, before we get into this, this the scientist I interviewed is named uh, Dr. Bruce Butler. I'm guessing that's how you say his name. But he won a Nobel Prize in 2011 for physiology and medicine. And I don't know, I don't understand what he did. So that's why I brought you two in. So who wants to give our listeners a quick synopsis of why he won the Nobel Prize? Okay, I'll go. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. The um, So this is Dr. Dahlberg talking. The really important thing that this that the Nobel Prize was awarded for for specifically for Dr. Butler was the discovery of the toll-like receptors which are a class of proteins and proteins are sort of molecular machines that sit on um, these ones in particular sit on the outside of our cells and the the protein receptors that he discovered and characterized are able to interact with pathogens. And so pathogens are things that we don't want invading our bodies. And specifically, he found um, one of these receptor proteins that could bind to a lipopolysaccharide, which is a long word that means fatty sugar molecule. Okay, in our bodies. Actually, outside our bodies, outside which our is bodies. important. So the whole idea here is that if you ha have a nasty bacterium or fungus, it's probably coated with these lipopolysaccharides, so fatty sugar molecules. And one way that our bodies can be sure that we don't let them get very far is by detecting their presence in or around our bodies. And so these proteins on the outside of our cells are able to sense the presence of pathogens in our bodies by, by finding out what a, which one of these greasy sugar molecules might be around. And once those molecules are sensed, then the body can launch a 
an inflammatory response. So you maybe get the sniffles or you break out in hives or you have a fever. But all of those are defense mechanisms that our bodies have for fighting things off non-specifically. Just saying like, that is wrong. I don't want it. So he's he studied these things and and like if you if your system isn't working very well if if they if these um, detectors aren't working then your immune system is compromised right <laughs> right and this is a specific part of your immune system that we call innate immunity which means that it's not super specific so we're not trying to come up with a new way to fight a new bug every minute we're just saying like generally speaking if you see a lipopolysaccharide of this type or shape it's just bad. Okay. We don't ask any more questions. We just try and kill it. So he, he's just studying these things. Like, what exactly did he do? So he found... So it, it was understood that probably there were these receptors. Okay, and in got it. fact, okay. probably the, one of the earliest ways that they knew about it was that there were fruit flies that didn't have these receptors and they weren't very healthy. And he suggested that maybe there was a similar receptor in mice. And mice are kind of like people. <laughs> and so he went in and found this receptor in mice and was able to open up a whole new branch of what we call immunology, so the study of how our bodies stay, stay healthy. So I was I was reading up about you, and I think you went to University of San Diego, UC San Diego, right. not not USD. That's that's right. a different school. That's different. I mean, how did you get to San Diego? Did you want to go to UC San Diego? Was that like your goal? And I, I read that you like got done very quickly. Did you like it there? I did like it there, but I yeah. had a focused goal in life. I wanted to be in biomedical sciences. And yeah, that had been true since I was in in my early teens. Let's say. Okay. Was there like a catalyst that did that? That was like, I want to do this. My dad had a strong influence. He was a biomedical scientist, <laughs> a hematologist and a geneticist. Yeah. And uh, he gave me quite a lot of advice then and suggested that I should go to medical school mm -hmm. where I'd learned physiology and pathology, pharmacology, become familiar with biological systems, and then I'd be able to do anything I wanted to in biology. So how old were you when he's like basically strongly encouraging these these terms that you may may, may or may not have known? <laughs> About 14 or 15. Okay, okay. So you were familiar with all of this stuff. Yes. Okay. Were you already kind of on that path where you were like, I, I'm looking up to my father and this looks interesting. I'm hanging out in his lab and I want to do this. Very much. Okay. <laughs> I have to say I kind of idolized my father at that time. Yeah. But why UCSD, though? So, like, were you... Uh, I applied to two schools. To, two. To Caltech and to UC San Diego. Okay. And I got into UC San Diego, uh, not into Caltech. <laughs> and I felt a little bit bad about that. Yeah. I remember my father making a kind of analogy and saying it was as though I had a choice between two restaurants. Yeah. And at one they would serve more than I could eat, and at the other, they would serve much more than I could eat. Right. And you're like, maybe it was for the best. Yes, I think it was not a bad thing to do. 
Well, I mean, your dad sounds really supportive. Was he, was he like, whatever, wherever you want to apply, it's going to be great? Or did he also have opinions on kind of uh, like certain universities that are going to help your path? He had uh, the latter view. Okay. And we didn't, any of us kids, apply to a large number of universities. Okay. And it was never really a consideration to go to Harvard or Yale or right. any of the famous Eastern universities because right. he felt we could get a top-notch education in science or in other areas. So I, I think that that is not a common thought, though. And I don't know if it was different during that time, but this idea that you can still get a really great education, that you're getting research experience and, and at these UC schools and other schools instead of going to the East Coast. Was, was your dad's view common at the time, or was it kind of progressive? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think he was certainly right. Yeah, and I think he was right too. <laughs> actually, it was quite a bargain to go to UC San Diego. Yeah. If I recall, the tuition was $500 a year. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so now you're, 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 you're in the sciences. You graduate pretty early. I, I read that you graduated when you were 18 and you're like off to grad school. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so did you find anything out at the university? Because you had this great background with your dad, but... Was there anything surprising at university that, like, you were surprised that you, you found this out and you're, like, learning your craft? I started to learn genetics in a formal way yeah. at uh, UCSD. I worked in the lab of Dan Lindsley, who was a Drosophila geneticist, and I began to uh, see how genetics worked, which made a big impact later on. Yeah. However, in those days, of course, it was very different. Yeah. Uh, one could never... Uh, sequence DNA, for example. Right. One could uh, find a phenotype, map a phenotype, get a good idea about what the gene product might be, but you couldn't do nearly what you can do now. Yeah. So what was the formal process? Like, can you kind of give us a short description I, of I that? I do remember I was, uh, I had a project that I brought to Dan Lindsley related to something my dad was working on in his lab at the City of Hope at the time where okay. he worked in those days. And uh, this had to do with hexosaminidase. I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to find a genetic variant of hexosaminidase, which is the enzyme missing in Tay-Sachs disease. Oh, okay. And to have okay. a Tay-Sachs model of a fly, I proposed that uh, I might try to find the gene for hexosaminidase in the fly. And in fact, I was able to map it in those days, had to outcross the fly to a marker strain, one called Rukuka, I happen to remember, okay. and then back cross and look at visible markers to try to uh, locate the, the gene on a chromosome. So, so, so let's go back, because our listeners might not know about Tay-Sachs. I only know about it because I have uh, biology friends, and we talk about this in our race and inclusion um, workshops where we talk about like misunderstandings of, of which groups has Tay-Sachs and which groups don't and this, this idea of kind of, um, what do I want to say, stereotyping. So can you, can you um, kind of talk to our listeners about exactly what is Tay-Sachs and then what, it, what do you mean by that mapping? Sure. Okay. First about Tay-Sachs. Yeah. It's a glycolipid storage disease in which an enzyme fails to degrade a polysaccharide chain that's hooked onto a lipid. Okay. And the lipid polysaccharide complex correspondingly accumulates in neurons. 
Okay, so this is like where exactly in your body is the neurons is going to be in the brain, in the brain, in the right? Brain. So yeah, that's right. I'm just I'm trying to break it down for our listeners. So things are building up in the brain that shouldn't be. Correct. Yeah. And it's a disease that is particularly poignant because children with it are born seeming quite normal, mm -hmm. but then they become blind and uh, regress in their development, and it's 100% fatal. Right, uh, and it's very quick, too, so it's going to yes. happen... Like... Typically within two, three years. Right. Uh, there may be some survivors a bit longer than that, but not many. Right. It's one of several glycolipid storage diseases. Uh, for example, there's also Sandhoff's disease, Gaucher's disease, Niemann-Pick disease. All of these are more common in Ashkenazi Jews. Right. Even though they involve different enzymes that are genetically unlinked to one another, and uh, that in itself is a very interesting observation, right. and it's not well understood at right. the present time. Right, and so we talk about in our workshops that because of the population that are, that and, and you start really linking it to genetics, people can start making bigger leaps that are not good, <laughs> you know, about like, well, then maybe people should be wary of having kids and stuff like that. And, and I think that, I remember talking to a biologist saying that it might not just be that population of Jewish people, but it could be the region, right? It could be the region of East, um, the Eastern Europe, but I don't know. It's it, it's very. Uh... It is mostly in Ashkenazi okay. Jews. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It is uh, also found in some areas of Moravia. Fundamentally, it appears the mutation arose in the progenitors of Ashkenazi Jews in the Rhine River Valley. Okay. And uh, it may have spread to other populations, but very little. Right. Because the Ashkenazi Jews were quite isolated. Right. And and your family. Is was is Ashkenazi Jew is Jew, your your ancestry. So has there been issues with that? Have you ever been at conferences where they come up with comments and you have to like explain to them the no, the no, biology? Not not, uh, not really. Okay, no. good. No. So as you're doing this work and you present this idea, did it actually work out? Did you talk to your advisor and you did the project and like there were big advances? I probably not big seen, ones. Not big I ones. would have to say this was part of my scientific infancy. Right, okay. And it was a good experience for me. Yeah. If I remember right, I was able to map the mutation to a point between two of the markers on chromosome 3 in the fruit fly. Okay. And I couldn't go much farther than that. Mm -hmm. There was a way in those days to delete parts of the Drosophila genome, which had been invented by my preceptor, Dan Lindsley. Okay. It was called segmental aneuploidy. You could cut out a part of each chromosome and walk your way along a chromosome. But I didn't get that far. Okay, but Maybe. that was the future. You could like surgically kind of alter these things so the uh, fruit fly wouldn't have to have this, this mutation. Uh, the, it, it would, or it would, take it would it lack out. one copy of the gene. Okay, got it, okay. Yes, but I never did find a fruit fly that uh, was completely lacking in hexosaminidase activity. So. I didn't make the Tay-Sachs fruit fly. Oh, okay. But you had the idea. Did Somebody probably did, though, right? You know, I bet someone has. Yeah. It certainly would be maybe, possible. Maybe I should look that up. So, so you know, you, you are an award-winning scientist. You, you've done all these things. What do you see really is the next big kind of advance in your field? We're, Since you only have so much time. So that's my question. <laughs> We're working now with mice. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I have been doing that for most of my career. Yeah. The mouse is a wonderful model for human diseases of all kinds. There is a Tay-Sachs mouse, for example. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, in fact, many human diseases are very well modeled in the mouse. It's been our interest to try to understand immunity in the mouse. The immune system in the mouse also is very similar to the human immune system in how it works. Uh, our approach has been to mutate the genome of the mouse with a chemical mutagen called ENU, ethyl nitrosourea. Okay. For what purpose? We do that to destroy genes at random or damage them severely, and then we breed the offspring of those mice that were exposed to the mutagen to bring the mutation to homozygosity, that is, to make it so that there are two copies of the mutation in every cell of the organism. Okay. And then we screen the mice, and we look to see whether immunity functions normally. If we find in a particular family that we've made of mice that there's an abnormality of immunity, what's really new in our lab is that we know instantly what the genetic cause is. Right. And it used to take years, but now we're able to assign responsibility for a phenotype to a particular mutation at the same time we see the phenotype. Yeah. That means that over a typical year, we might find three, four, five hundred phenotypes and know their causes, and we're able to approach saturation of the genome, the point where every gene will have been damaged or destroyed under close observation, right. and we'll know all the parts of the machine. Yeah, that is really, I mean, that, that's mind-boggling for me, that you would be able to get through the whole, I mean, every single part and actually try to make some association to a disease, a dysfunction of immunity. So, I mean, actually, I want, I want to ask one last question about immunity. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of worry, you know, people I know, children about immune diseases and vaccinations and people exposing their children to like playing outside and, you know, antibacterial soap, all that kind of stuff. Is, do, you, do you get questions about that? And like, is this actually affecting the human immune system the more and more safe we are, the more and more sterile we are? Uh, I do get asked questions like that. I also get yeah. asked questions, how can I boost my immune system? Exactly, yeah. Those the, that was the first question when I was reading your stuff. I was like, I'm sure you get these questions. So how do you field them? Like, do you say, like, I, that's not my field and I don't really no, want to get no, into it? Okay. I, I have definite opinions about that. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you uh, want to boost your immune system, you get vaccinated. Yeah. And uh, to people who are squeamish about vaccinating their children because they've heard some bit of bad science here and there that says it might be linked to autism or this or that. Yeah. I say try living without it. If you consider what life was like before we could vaccinate against measles and mumps and diphtheria, etc., 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 it was terrible. And yeah. I'll talk to this class shortly. Do you know what the median lifespan was of people in Victorian England? I believe it was like 42, 38, it something like that. It was 10 years. 10 years. The average <laughs> baby that was born oh, could right. expect to live 10 years. Oh, my gosh. That was when half the population had died. Oh, right. So yeah. the immune system by itself uh, is not enough <laughs> to really defend us effectively right. if we're living in the wild state. Right. If we practice good hygiene and we have immunization against those diseases we can vaccinate against, and we have antibiotics, then we can live to be 80, median lifespan. Right. Makes a big difference. Yeah. Much better life quality living to 80 than living to 10. Right. <laughs> 
Well, that's actually a great soundbite. I really like that. We're going to end there. And thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Yeah. Pleasure. We started our interview talking about Dr. Boitler's childhood and why he went into science and also why he attended UC San Diego. I want to go like kind of chronologically in, in my interview. Um, basically, I start talking about his his background. And what I really, really, really liked is he started talking about how his uh, dad really suggested that he apply to UC schools. He was like his dad was like, don't you don't need to go to Harvard. You don't need to go to these like Ivy League schools. A UC, um, you know, University of California school is going to be just as good. So what did, what did you think when you heard that clip? I can't remember what his dad did. That was... He's what... a hematologist. He's a hematologist. What is that? Somebody who studies blood. Okay. So then he spent time in his dad's lab, which obviously would be a lot of fun. <laughs> Looking at blood cells. Look at this. He, he, got, <laughs> he got super happy when, he, when I, I talked so. about his dad. I mean... Not every kid's going to be happy about looking at blood in the lab, but... <laughs> yeah, but some of them like. His, I really like the quote that was, um, you know, he applied to Caltech and then UC San Diego, and the quote was something about, like, you'll go... One restaurant will serve you too much, and the other one will serve you way too much. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's, like, yeah. especially starting out in, as, like, a college student, like, there's a lot of knowledge. Right. Just a whole yeah. lot. Yeah, I was actually taken aback where, I mean, Lena, you and I have talked about this where you have, like, you have scientist parents and I, sure I do. And, and I don't, but, like, to see how happy it made him, mm-hmm. he was just like, I, he, he said that he looked up, you heard so in the clip, you heard in the clip that um, he really looked up to his dad yeah. and, and having that really role model was just amazing. And I, I really liked that part of it because when we think of Nobel laureates, we think of, like, these giants that, you know aren't going to spend 15 minutes talking to me, but he, he was really, this is going to sound so stupid. He was really human in that clip. And in the family business. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, the other thing is don't ever let my mom listen to this, but the only time I ever really worked with my mom in the lab, she like set up a little experiment for do for me to do. I think I was in like eighth grade or something. It was terrifying. Were you intimidated by your mother? I'm still intimidated by my mother. <laughs> She's a great scientist, and so is my dad. And I, I and I spent a lot of time in their lab, but I never spent time being in the lab. I was not allowed into the lab. I was allowed into the sort of the research space and then asked to sit sort of quietly and not get into trouble. <laughs> I drew on the whiteboards a lot. <laughs> really? Yeah. So what, what about you, Jackie? Well, I have brought my... Or when he was younger, I brought my son in to watch some surgeries and to do some of to help out with some of the culturing and um so what like those surgeries what are you talking about so at, <laughs> at that time we were culturing primary hippocampal neurons so you had to extract from the animal the neurons i'm just going to put it that way <laughs> and then put it in a dish and you grow them you up cut into their brains a little gorier but yeah. anyway <laughs> picture gore I don't do that anymore. It's all about worms. Yeah. 
But worms, the, worms don't have the hippocampus. Worms don't have a hippocampus. Yeah, don't come and protest Jackie Rose's <laughs> um, lab. She, now you can mail order a hippocampus. You don't actually have to have the whole animal. You, it's you, totally fine. Really? You both work with worms. So you work the we same do. worm. We do. Yeah. yeah. But I, he came in, and from that day forward, he said he would never do a what he called a wet science or an icky science, a soft science, like soft <gasps> tissue science. All right. So then he went into physics, darts at you. and. Yeah. <laughs> It's not my fault. And now he's a mechanical engineer. So, well, what about, what about your parents? Do you, do you have early memories, or what's your earliest memory of being in a wet lab? I've never been in one. So Regina, saying, Regina, you've been in a lab because you brought your daughter to my lab. I did. I was just about to talk about that because, like, I never. I took biology in high school. I didn't take it in college. Um, I didn't really take chemistry in college, so I haven't been around very many, you know, wet labs. So. Just, I think, a couple months ago, my, my daughter and I, she's nine, we went up to Dr. Dahlberg, Lena's lab, and we looked at the worms that Jackie Rose and uh, Lena Dahlberg works on, and, and I felt like a real scientist. Like, I have a PhD in physics and all that, but, like, as I was looking in the microscope, which I've <laughs> never done with this worm before, I could see it, and it was moving, and I felt amazing. Like, it was, it was, my daughter was so happy. Awesome. I've met other Nobel laureates, and um, a lot of them are really, really good folks, right. and a lot of them are good guys, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. yeah. No, he, he definitely was. Um, I do want to kind of get into the next clip that we're going to listen to, and that this next clip he starts basically talking about, um, like, a lot of jargon. <laughs> like, he's, it, like, we're going to talk about Tay-Sachs in a second. He talks about that as well, but let's actually talk about, he talks about gene editing and destroying genes. So he kind of put a lot of like biology terms in there and I was kind of lost. But again, I had a very short amount of time to talk to him, so I couldn't stop him. Let's actually break apart this clip and I'm actually going to play it for us here. Okay, first about Tay-Sachs. Yeah. It's a glycolipid storage disease in which an enzyme fails to degrade a polysaccharide chain that's hooked onto a lipid. Okay. And the lipid polysaccharide complex correspondingly accumulates in neurons. And okay. So this is like where exactly in your body is the neurons is going to be? In the brain. In the brain, in right? The brain. So, yeah. That's right. I'm just I'm trying to break it down for listeners. So, things are building up in the brain that shouldn't be. Correct. Yeah. And it's a disease that is particularly poignant because children with it are born seeming quite normal, mm -hmm. but then they become blind and uh, regress in their development, and it's 100% fatal. Right. Uh, it's very quick, too. So it's going to yes. happen. Like... Typically within two, three years. Right. Uh, there may be some survivors a bit longer than that, but not many. Right. It's one of several glycolipid storage diseases. Uh, for example, there's also Sandhoff's disease, Cochet's disease, Niemann-Pick disease. All of these are more common in Ashkenazi Jews. Right. Even though they involve different enzymes that are genetically unlinked to one another. And uh, that in itself is a very interesting observation. Right. And it's not well understood right. at the present time. Right. And so we talk about in our workshops that because of 
the population that are that and and you start really linking it to genetics people can start making bigger leaps that are not good you know about like well then maybe people should be wary of having kids and stuff like that and and i think that i remember talking to a biologist saying that it might not just be that population of Jewish people, but it could be the region, right? It could be the region of East, um, the Eastern Europe, but I don't know. It's, it, it's very... Uh... It is mostly an Ashkenazi okay. Jewish. Okay, yeah. It is uh, also found in some areas of Moravia. Fundamentally, it appears the mutation arose in the progenitors of Ashkenazi Jews in the Rhine River Valley. Okay. And uh, it may have spread to other populations, but very little, right. because the Ashkenazi Jews were quite isolated. Right. So you'll, you'll hear in that clip that I was trying to get at kind of this idea of diseases and science being used to actually, I want to say, um, discriminate towards certain races, to actually say that certain groups are much, much different than others, to have like some superiority. So science was used in a not so great way. And I was trying to get at that with um, Dr. Butler, but he it was not going well. <laughs> So I don't know, did, did you, after listening to that clip, did you two want to add anything? His, his definition of Tay-Sachs was pretty good. I remember, Jackie, you saying that. But is there anything else like you wanted to add to like how science is used to kind of discriminate or to justify discrimination is basically what I was trying to get at. Well, I think what I, what I took away from his discussion, which I thought was, was interesting, is that for, a long, for some time, right, it's been clear that isolated populations, for example, the Ashkenazi Jews in, in Europe, those have been traditionally isolated populations. And so when there are mutations or disease phenotypes, they become associated sometimes very closely with those populations. Mm. And what I thought was really important that Dr. Butler brought up was this idea that it's not that Tay-Sachs is exclusively found in an Ashkenazi Jewish population, although it has a high prevalence there because of the isolation of that population of people. But he also brought up the idea that there are other isolated populations where similar diseases are found. And for example, he brought up the idea that there's a population of Moravian folks in the Czech Republic where you see, you see a similar situation where an isolated population has a higher prevalence of a disease phenotype. And I think that's really important because those people, um, having lived in the Czech Republic, um, those people are not, in, are not represented as a Jewish population. Those are a, a different population of Europeans that happen to be isolated within their population. But um, yeah, I, I think that what he, what he was dancing around a little bit was that if you have a population where you can start attributing phenotypes to a specific population, it, become, it can become used as a tool of discrimination. Um, and it has been used as a discriminatory tool. Um, but I thought that it was really important that he brought up other populations that have the same disease phenotype, but are different quote unquote populations of people. Right. I was trying to get at like, has he ever had to deal with that in, in like a conference or, or with other scientists? And I, I guess I'm just kind of opening it up to you two in the field of biology or neuroscience, have you actually run into people using science 
to like kind of what do I want to say um, support their biases. And it doesn't have to be racial. It could be any other biases. I, I know. I would, I would think to, with like neuroscience, there might be. Something. Well, I think especially in neuroscience and in health in general, there's a huge. It's been going on for decades, and we're now addressing the the fact that a lot of animal research has always been conducted on male of the species. So we don't know a whole lot of really what female. Mm -hmm physiology looks like in fact and so I mean I just came from a neuroscience conference up in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago where this eminent researcher I think he works in pain and so he had all of this data for the male rats and how they process pain and so now because the funding agencies are insisting that they also do their experiments in female rats and the data came out completely different and he just kind of ended his his talk with like I don't know <laughs> and I was like oh my goodness so what are we supposed to do <laughs> oh my god I I literally want to have a show just about how science has been misused in the past because it has um you know as as supporting discriminatory ideas but also like how there is bias in the science we do sometimes now and it's kind of controversial right because I think science has a bad rap in, sometimes in the in the public being like you don't really know what you're talking about so I don't want to add fuel to that fire but I also want to say that we are human and we we as humans conduct these experiments and we have we all have these biases well yeah I mean we bring our bias to our experiments right we sure. what are we interested in and why are we interested in it that comes from who we are and what our experiences were right like there's yeah. no way around that um, but I think that it is it is really interesting to look at that that field of of neuroscience is is clearly up and coming and it is true that now when you write a grant you have to talk about how you're going to address essentially sex bias mm -hmm. in your in your experiments and it becomes really important i mean there are all sorts of other neuroscience experiments like how birds learn to sing right which has implications for how humans or other organisms learn how to talk and how to use language but not all of the birds learn to sing the same songs from the same parent because right there the are two way. there yeah. are two sexes in the in the in the bird families also. Yeah, which no, doesn't even get it into a continuum of you know, sex and it's across. Funny our there's always this background explanation of people avoided doing research with female rats, say because there were fluctuating hormone levels that could affect behavioral outcomes, and so to do that, you would have to do things like over overectomize them first and then control hormones. So it just added this layer of complexity. So so researchers would just opt to, well, we'll just work with males. Right. <laughs> but then it just builds this whole assumption that the same would be true in females when the whole reason why they avoided doing research in females the in the first place is because it's not the same. It's but, harder. But, you know, it, it also brings up this idea. I mean, Dr. Butler talked about, you know, like, oh, yeah, and mice are really similar to humans, mm -hmm. which is true to a point. And mm -hmm. then it turns out that many of the studies that we've done on sepsis, for example, have been done in mice. And it turns out that those results do not transfer very well to the human immune system or inflammatory system. So right. the bias against, with I mean, the correct ethical bias <laughs> against doing human biology research on humans also leads to complications when we think about you know, how to transfer our results. This is all really fascinating. I wish we had more time. Um, we will. I'm going to come back and do a biology bias or science bias episode. 
and you'll come. Um, let, oh, we will. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that, that's an order. So with that, though, let's get to this next clip. And, and he starts actually talking about, he talks about the next big thing in, in his field. Mm. And, and in this next big thing, he starts talking about this um, a gene mapping. So in that in that case, I think he does. I think I stopped him. <laughs> there was a lot of jargon. And so do you could either of you talk about this like gene mapping? We can edit this, right? This yeah. is the quote where he's talking about mutagenizing the animals and then homozygosing them and yeah. then looking for what genes there are, right? Yeah. By using a chemical to make mutations in the genome of the mice and then making sure that each mouse only has one mutation in one gene, more or less. Um, he's able to dissect out a whole pathway because since each gene encodes a protein and since each protein has a function in the, in the animal, when you see a defect then in the animal, you can relate it back to the mutation that happened in that animal. Right. And, that's, and that's why, I mean, it's in many ways a very expensive process because for each gene you have to make a new mouse, right? You have to have a new line of mice that has that mutation in it. Um, like how many do you need? It depends on the pathway. So yeah. the pathways that he's working on could have, you know, hundreds of genes that are related to each other in, in the pathway. So, uh, yeah, it's expensive. Yeah. It's a in, lot ter of mice. in terms of money and mice. Wow. Yeah. I was just looking up, too, that they... So doing that, there is what he calls a large number of genes that they found with all these single mutations that he's able to look at. And then he challenges basically the immune systems of these mutant mice to see um, how well they respond to this virus. What he's been able to do is what I don't know if he calls it or somebody else has coined this for him. The resistome. <laughs> what is genes involved in immunity basically okay. and so then categorizing them into like sensing ones that are important for sensing ones that are important for the inflammation or ones that are important for other parts of that immunity process <laughs> all comprise the resistome got it okay so biologists loves love ohms yeah. <laughs> ohms just means large collections of things so like the gene ohm okay. or the proteasome okay. or the ribosome or the connectome or the connectome or the transcriptome okay so lots okay. of ohms i just heard resistome and i thought of a dome actually i thought of like the thunderdome but go ahead <laughs> Okay, it's more like the Tacoma Dome. The actually, Tacoma. Tacoma. it's still there, so that's good. That's yeah. good. Importantly, you were saying that he's he's called these things. Well, like all the the large number of genes that have that he's discovered that play a role in all of these different sort of Got processes okay. of immunity comprise the, the grander resistome. Got it. Got it. Okay. <laughs> but but this. But this new thing of being able to actually, like, I mean, he said it in that clip. He said that, like, at some point we're going to be able to, like, figure out where every gene does, right? And that, to me, that sounds really ambitious. I mean, how how ambitious is that? I mean, is it realistic? I, I think it's it depends on how you define gene. Right. How helpful is that? I mean, I would say <laughs> that it's not overly ambitious to say we might know what every gene, what protein every gene encodes and basically what the function of each of those proteins are. But <laughs> as we learn more and more about our genomes, we find there are more and more areas of the genome that are not encoding proteins that are either 
encoding other molecules of RNAs or that are somehow not encoding things that get expressed out of our genome but are structurally important. And so understanding what every single piece of the genome does, that's a much more ambitious and potentially unending project. I don't know. I'm like looking at Jackie for confirmation here. I feel like there are are all sorts of institutes that are out there to say like, we will solve the genome. And I've always been the person in the audience being like, really? (laughs) Well, because the other thing is just, I mean, when you talk about RNA, we know that from moment to moment, what a cell is producing is changing too. So whenever you've got the snapshot of the genome and its function, it's only the snapshot in that developmental stage or in that circumstance or that environment or signaling environment or all the different things that change and then it's going to change within even the same cell under different conditions so it's never i yeah it's a big yeah. project yeah <laughs> yeah well i ended because he was very very busy here at western and the last thing i asked him i had already run over the 15 minutes and i was like wait a minute do people ask you about the immune system. Mm-hmm. Do they ask you like s- things about vaccines? Do they ask you about like, what can I do? And he goes, oh yes. And then, so let's go ahead and play that clip. If you uh, want to boost your immune system, you get vaccinated. Yeah. And uh, to people who are squeamish about vaccinating their children because they've heard some bit of bad science here and there that says it might be linked to autism or this or that, I say try living without it. If you consider what life was like before we could vaccinate against measles and mumps and diphtheria, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it was terrible. And I'll talk to this class shortly. Do you know what the median lifespan was of people in Victorian England? I believe it was like 42, 38, it something like that. It was 10 years. 10 years? The average what? baby that was born oh, could right. expect to live 10 years. Oh my gosh. That was when half the population had died. Oh, right. So yeah. the immune system by itself uh, is not enough <laughs> to really defend us effectively right. if we're living in the wild state. Right. If we practice good hygiene and we have immunization against those diseases we can vaccinate against, and we have antibiotics, then we can live to be 80, median lifespan. Right. Makes a big difference. Yeah. Much better life quality living to 80 than living to 10. So he talks about, first of all, he's just like vaccines. He like jumps on that, right? And um, so as biologists, as a neuroscientist, do you also kind of live in the realm where you get these questions too? And what what do you want to say? Um, it's an open forum. <laughs> get vaccinated. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Herd immunity. Yeah. It's important. Herd immunity. Yeah, I don't actually. Know. That was one thing that I took issue with. Where he was like, "If you don't, you know, if you don't want to be vaccinated, see how it is without it." That's not how it works, though, right? <laughs> it's not that one person might get sick, but we're worried about the whole population here. So, yeah, get yourself vaccinated. But I'd say, yeah, like I mean, 
I work on an on a receptor protein that's is orthologous that is that's similar to a human receptor that's important for learning and memory and then I get questions about how the animals remember things and then I have to point people to Jackie. With I think we we live in a town if I want to bring it back to vaccinations um we live in a town who is the population is very I I think science supportive like if we talk about climate change and other things however the vaccination rate is not as science supportive in, mm-hmm. in our community here in, um, in at least the southern part of Bellingham. So, like, what do you do when you come into that kind of um, conversation in your everyday life? Your kids are not allowed to play with my kids. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, we've been pretty – I mean, I also have kids, and sort of we've, we've had – I mean, I don't think I've had to have that conversation with somebody. We I've – actually worried about that a lot though when we started moving into preschool because there were some opt-out clauses where I was like if you start that I'm, I'm gonna have to move my child because I'm not comfortable with yeah. it but well, there's um, a school in town that has like 30 30 percent not vaccinated that's a that's huge high. percentage that's horrible I think it's private school yeah. but but I mean I, so I don't know like related to my own science I don't yeah. get a lot of questions that sort of hit that super close to home and I no longer work directly in developmental biology, but when I did, those questions came a lot more clear. I mean, people would ask questions about developmental defects, and, and right. because I was studying that, I had some ideas about ways that organisms develop. Right. I, I mean, I, I think he did an okay job responding to my question, but I, I teach a science communication course, and we talk about these ideas in science that can be seen as controversial, but as you are talking, that you don't have you don't have to deal with these things at conferences, right? This is not a controversial topic. <laughs> not, not at a conference. <laughs> right, right, right. So in our, in our scientific communities, we don't have to deal with these things, but we might have to deal with them when we're outside. Mm-hmm. So are there other controversial things that come up? I guess I've already kind of asked that, but it, it, you talked about... Um, I don't know, the gender thing, that's not very controversial, but is there anything else that comes up in in your fields that you do have to deal with? I mean, one thing that I feel like probably Jackie and I both deal with is we both think of ourselves as what we call basic researchers, which means that we are talking about the fundamental processes that underlie how organisms work. And I would say a lot of biologists are interested in, in that type of research. And what that means is that People can look at our research and say, why would we care what happens in a worm? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I do yeah. get that all the time. Right. Like, <laughs> so who cares if the worm goes that direction or that direction? Yeah. And the upshot is I don't care per se about that particular animal. But the knowledge that we're gaining through those experiments m- really do have underpinnings for our understanding of, of human health. And so if we want to tie it to a human health angle, that's one thing. But there are also plenty of examples of of basic research being drivers for really fundamental leaps forward in in human technologies. Yeah, I think probably the gene editing CRISPR is a good example, mm-hmm. starting in bacteria and understanding how that happens, not even in a you know multicellular with neurons organism, but bacteria. And now it's you know leading to potential what a quote-unquote gene therapies in humans. So we never would have got there by looking at the human to see how we could be able to to mm-hmm. edit genes for within a human. Yeah, and even off San Juan Island, I mean, GFP, which is the green fluorescent protein, was discovered 
at Friday Harbor Labs, yeah. um, and that is a jellyfish protein that we now use, you know, fundamentally throughout biology as enable us to understand how molecules and cells work. Yeah, and we use it across species, probably not in humans, but cats, dogs. <laughs> I, ha I show a video clip, uh, or I've shown a video clip in previous sections of my Intro to Behavioral Neuroscience class, where they have uh, the cat's name is Mr. Green Jeans, <laughs> and they turn on the black light, and oh, the, the cat glows green. <laughs> wow. So wow. it was from a jellyfish, but, you know, it can go, it, once, it, once you have the genetic code, it can be applied then to. Then you can do breakthrough research in cat glowing. <laughs> An important... Don't you have one? <laughs> There, there was, there was a Sherlock episode about this, I think. For oh, really? Yeah. I missed it. But yeah. I will say that yeah. that GFP is can also be used for things like learning how cells, for example, how attack cells in our bodies can can trace and follow cancer cells, right? Mm. So, like the immune yeah. therapies that we're understanding are really powerful against cancer. Glowing cats aside. We yes. wouldn't be able to do that without having found this jellyfish protein. Well, don't put them aside. We're using them <laughs> to, for part of this, right? We're and using also them as research. for uh, taking donor donor cells. <laughs> they make them glow green, and then you can find them in the yeah. uh, recipient. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. That is awesome. I'm so glad we actually came to that point. We're going to have to end it there. Thank you both for talking to me. Thank you so much for helping me kind of dissect what I went through as interviewing <laughs> Bruce, who is a wonderful man, but I did not know anything about biology. So thank you for being my, my rocks. <laughs> you can call us anytime. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Spark Science. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, Send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Our producer is Regina Barbara DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Natalie Moore, Andra Norden, and Tori Hiley. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I wrap your thing, iodine, nitrate, activate. Red uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance with some balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients, they can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.